Welcome to this week's VFX show. I am Mike Seymour and uh, welcome back. We are here to look at Mission Impossible. Oh, just what what are we up to, guys? Six, seven, eight? Uh, it's like James Bond, right? Six. Um, it's Fallout and for, for covering the Fallout, I have the diamond in the rough. Jason, how are you? I am uh, good. I have not fallen out yet. I should be introducing you as the Emmy-nominated Jason oh, Dunn. well, yes, hopefully soon to be Emmy Award winning. That's uh, fingers crossed. And uh, before we discuss Emmys too far, Matt, how are you, Matt Wallen? Uh, I am excellent. Just uh, like a very short uh, number of days away from uh, the beginning of fall classes here. I start on Monday. Oh, boy. What's your favorite award that you've won over the years, Matt? My favorite award? Um, uh, Miss Congeniality. Excellent. <laughs> I will say I had great fun when Maya was nominated for an Emmy. The uh, tequila fountain was just spectacular. Lots mm. of fun. <laughs> yes. What do you guys think about the fact that the Oscars, they're not going to have the um, same kind of craft categories in the main uh, thing anymore? Because they're already I, in the, so I was going to say in the Emmys, you've got two, right? You've got the whole craft um, yeah. Emmys and then the sort of traditional Emmys because there are so bloody many of them. What do you think about that? I don't. I don't appreciate the the monkeying with the awards ceremonies. It's just annoying. It's like it is what it is. Everyone understands it's a three hour show. Watch it or don't. We're celebrating an artistic art form here, but it always comes down to money, like anything else, and ad revenue. Not the movies. Thus, the reason they're adding a what most popular movie category, which is not the People's Choice Awards. You know what I mean? It's mm. so it's so aggravating to me. But yeah, I don't know me. that I have a, a real strong feeling about it. I mean, I think um, you know the fact that the awards have existed uh, in their current form for uh, certainly a, a number of decades at this point. Um, I think makes any change difficult. But I also sort of um, I can also understand the, the the concept of it as a as a program a program that has to uh, sell, uh, you know, to advertisers and tries to generate ratings to get people to watch it. I mean, it is a, it is a, an entertainment program. Um, the awards themselves um, still exist, um, but the opportunity to speak on television in that same format um, may not exist for some. And I could see where that would be really disappointing and feel like a slight or a level of disrespect, but I don't know that, um, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of of two minds about it. I can see that side, but I also can sort of see the business side of it and maybe understand some of the reasons behind the shift. They're ruining my Oscar pool. All right. Let's just get down to the brass tacks. (laughs) So Ben Grossman, who's a great guy and a VFX advisor, Oscar winner himself, um, Mag Opus, just really great guy, Ben. He made a point, which is that he's happy that the Academy does anything as long as the Academy is doing what it's doing at the moment, which is in addition to the sort of obvious thing, which is giving out awards, it's got other initiatives and other great work that it's um, doing. And that kind of segues into the uh, the ASWF, which is the uh, open source... Academy Software Foundation, which was just launched at uh, SIDGRAPH. So this is a joint venture really between the Academy industry and the Linux Foundation to have open source on VFX tools. So the argument goes that if you continue to have a successful Oscars, which obviously is the main money-making event of the Academy, 
then you can do these sort of things, which are really good for the industry, such as the Linux Foundation um, joint venture on making sure that there's a safe, harboured kind of um, legal entity coordinating body uh, in in cooperation, of course, with industry that would allow um, software to be open source more readily and more more reliably. Now, I should point out that the Academy is lending its name to this and obviously doing some work in this respect, but also industry is kicking in like six digits worth of cash as well. So it's not like it's all being funded by the Academy. What do we think? Does the Academy do enough stuff outside? Were you interested in that announcement at Sidgrove? I mean, I think it's pretty exciting. I don't know. I think stuff like that's it's cool, like, you know, to be involved in, um, you know, other aspects of of uh, the functioning aspects of industry beyond the, um, you know, just sort of the celebration of industry. I mean, I think that's cool. What about you, Jason? Do you use many open source tools? Uh, I don't use that many open source tools, actually. But I am a huge proponent of the concept. Uh, so now you say you don't use. Okay, so then you just walked right into my trap. Yeah, of course. So, so here are the, some of the open source projects that we have in the industry that I bet you do use. I bet you in indirectly or directly, uh, obviously, use things like OpenEXR. Um, any pipelines that use open uh, color or open image formats. Then, of course, you've got a ton of stuff to do with. Um, uh, well, the first thing that's going to go into the Academy is the uh, format from Houdini for um, OpenVDB, but there's also OpenSubdiv. There's the um, ton of stuff around everything from my, um, Python to, uh, I don't know, fluid dynamic stuff to the ACES, obviously, color stuff that was came out of the Academy. But then there's Olympic workflows. There's Blender. There's the bullet physics libraries. Um, yeah, well, in higher education too, I will say we love open source tools and software. Um, just that students who uh, are spending a lot of money on tuition, they have the opportunity to gain access to um, tools that um, industry uses um, for free in most cases. I mean, one of the problems the industry has is being able to have uniform out, like uniform sort of um, standards, and obviously open source. I mean, like just point at OpenEXR. It's like an enormous tool for for doing stuff. The one I'm really tracking at the moment is um, is USD, which is the Universal Scene Description stuff out of uh, Pixar, mm-hmm. which is appearing in all sorts of forms at all sorts of places, uh, doing great stuff. Okay, so so leaving that aside for a second, was there anything else that you, you get? I, I went to SIGGRAPH, uh in Vancouver, and you couldn't make it, right, Matt? Yeah, I wasn't able to go this year, but we did have uh, a number of students who were in attendance from uh, VCU where I teach, and uh, it was kind of exciting. There was um, a group of students from uh, the Kinetic Imaging Program at our School of the Arts and a few students from um, Communication Arts and probably even some other programs uh, some people maybe attended to that I uh, didn't see in our uh, Facebook group, but it was it was pretty cool seeing uh, images of uh, kids from school that were able to go. But yeah, this year I wasn't able to make it. I'm I'm in um, <laughs> I'm in lockdown with a, a whole host of um, kind of really uh, not so exciting uh, academic uh, reporting activities that are going on at the present moment. <laughs> so Jason, yeah, it looked does, like a great conference this year. Does SIDGRAPH get on your radar? Uh, it does. I just am never around. I was in. 
uh, actually, this year, if it was in LA, I was in LA during SIGGRAPH, so I probably would have been able to go. That was in go. Vancouver. No, I know, but that's what I'm saying. It, oh, okay. In the past, when I've hung out with you there yep. during SIGGRAPH, it's been in LA. Uh, so if it happened to be in LA this year, then I would have been able to go because I was there working. But right. uh, maybe, I think next year, right, is LA? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I had some friends. in LA next year. I had some friends who went from here uh you know who are focused on the vr stuff and uh right. i haven't I haven't been able to sit with them and get the download uh, of what they saw and were interested in but i saw their instagram feeds i feel like all the stuff i was following at least all the real-time um like the real-time ray tracing stuff i think is super exciting there was even a a video uh that came out this morning um which i don't I don't know if they showed this at Seagraph, but it was a demonstration of um, uh, Dice and Electronic Arts Battlefield Five uh, mm. upcoming release. Is that and the one? The it's fire burning near the vehicle and stuff. Yeah, and they and you can see the ray tracing um, reflections um, and transparency and stuff in the eyes of a character at the beginning, and um, all the stuff in the water on the ground, like a flamethrower and bombers flying overhead. I mean, it's a it's a war World War Two um, combat. Uh, sort of style game, but they were demonstrating um, an, a new NVIDIA card, I believe, and a real-time ray tracing solution for, um, you know, a really popular uh, multiplayer um, game system. And, and in the talk that I watched, they were talking about how in next-gen game consoles, um, you know, this is something that um, will be fairly... Um, Standard, you know, that you'll start to have this kind of stuff going on, either this gen or the next gen, I think they were saying. Well, interestingly, that card from NVIDIA, Jason, also allows 8K DisplayPort payback and native HDR stuff. It's a heck of a graphics That's card. That's the RTX having one, AI. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think Red already came out saying how happy they were to see that um, RTX. Well, also... Uh, Jared said that they had been working directly with NVIDIA to take advantage of the touring technology, which is software, so that even older cards, I think all the way back to 1080 Ti's, would actually see a, a benefit of, you know, getting, uh, actually getting rid of the Red Rocket style uh, single use card and applying GPU debayers from NVIDIA. Uh, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, we'll get back on to obviously the the topic at hand, which is of course um, Mission Impossible in a second. I'm kind of working my way around to it uh, through the most <laughs> indirect path. But uh, what's interesting to me about this card is that it has obviously the real-time ray tracing. The real-time ray tracing is made possible by the fact that it has um, machine learning, people say AI, but it's really machine learning uh, noise reduction, which allows the sort of quality to be acceptable because you get so far with the rays and then you get the rest of the way in turning that noisy image into a clean image using the um, the onboard uh, machine learning tools. Now, that uses a whole lot of the stuff that um, we've seen previously back at GDC where they did the uh, real-time demo, but back there it was like about $150,000 to $300,000 worth of kit. We're now talking about... a. The, I, I was basically looking at RTX 6,000 cards at um, either one or two at SIDGRAPH, and that was 6,300 or, of course, two of them, uh, you know, 12,500. Um, and it was stunning watching what they were doing. 
like watching it live. I spoke also to the Porsche guys that um, did the demo with. Uh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, Unreal. I sat down with Porsche and talked to those guys, and just in terms of getting accurate views on, you know, models. And, uh, of course, just seeing how a car would look in terms of the reflection in the paintwork and everything, they were really happy with what they were getting and just couldn't be more enthusiastic about how that would be used. So outside our industry, there would be a ton of people that would be super keen to, to get that. Um, but, yeah, it was real-time Arnold rendering, the real-time uh, V-Ray. Though V-Ray doesn't use, I've found out since, the onboard uh, NVIDIA denoising. They use their own denoising. And, um, and of course, stuff happening out of uh, Unreal with the uh, – the Porsche demo, and that's that stuff is on our site on FX Guide if you want to check it out. But I guess the question is, I mean, for me, virtual production is really interesting. So obviously, the more stuff we can do in car, mm-hmm. the better. But Matt, with your eye, like, I mean, surely we made a pretty significant step forward in this last twelve months as we've allowed quite realistically real time ray tracing at a kind of a at a level that's usable as opposed to kind of like a sort of a notional postage stamp version or something else. Yeah, I guess I, I sort of feel like it kind of fits into the box with a lot of the things that um, that I think really are exciting to me in my sort of current post in education, which is the democratization of tool sets. And I feel like, the, well, the cost of that card, um, as you described, is still fairly prohibitive, um, you know, within you know, X number of cycles and maybe another four or five years tops. I mean, we're going to see probably less than that. I think that cost is going to come down significantly per unit. And you're going to see, you know, students and, you know, average Joe citizen being able to sort of take advantage of um, these kind of real-time solutions, whether it's for, um, you know, kind of low-budget visual effects work and production or uh, certainly in games, like my my son, it's kind of fun. My son starts high school uh, after Labor Day here, and um, which is kind of exciting. But he and all his friends, you know, they they play uh, with each other online and and talk, uh, you know, over the Xbox or whatever. And and um, it's interesting listening to them who don't have. Um, the same kind of exposure to sort of the industry and language maybe that we have, although it seems like they kind of do like, you know, my son was the one who sent me the battlefield five video. Like he Mm -hmm. saw it before I did on YouTube and was super excited about it. And then I'm listening to my son talking to his friends about real time ray tracing. And he, I think (laughs) I'm like, do you even know what that is? You know? And, um, so, I mean, I think there's this kind of push and the connection to, you know, um, AAA game titles and the popularity that those have with with young people, it's really exciting because it brings to it brings to um, a more populist audience um, this sort of democratization of these tools that have long been sort of the holy grail of you know visual effects um, and uh, post production, and it's turning it into something that I think it becomes a part of the the populist vernacular like i think even you know kids kind of know what this stuff is and what this means and you can see it's such a huge leap in terms of visual um quality and the simulation of more realistic perceptions like the the porsche commercial you were talking about the um the uh uh sorry i'm drawing a blank the uh, unreal Mm. um 
engine and what they were doing with that. My sons uh, and his buddies were saying, yeah, that looks so cool in Battlefield. Imagine what that's going to look like in, you know, Forza Horizon 7, you know, Um, and the idea of what's that going to do for racing games, which already have such a heightened sense of realism because of the limited kinds of um, things that they're sort of rendering and what they're trying to create. But that kind of ray tracing and that kind of environment in terms of immersion of games, I think, is really exciting. Well, and what you're talking about in terms of the... um uh, populist sort of populist absorbing high technology is, and you guys know what I'm talking about. I can't talk about what it is yet, but I'm working on a project with my brother that actually talks about the history of, of that and how mm-hmm. we went mm-hmm. from the, you know, four guys in a garage to, you know, your son and my son sitting around with their friends on, on laptop computers, you know, doing things that these guys, you know, had to wait 20 years to do with millions of dollars worth a year. So, you know, it's, it's the, the democratization of sorts of technology is like how we keep getting forward. You know, it happened with like MIDI and audio, you know, all of a sudden a college kid in the early eighties could do a symphony in his bedroom, you know, and then, and then you get to things like the, um, the red camera, you know, that democratized, you know, high uh, quality capture. And then you get to like black magic buying Da Vinci and other things like that. And all of a sudden and final cut pro and all these higher end, you know, sort of aspirational tools for lack of a better word, making their way into the hands of the every man. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that qualitatively, but just, you know, yeah. that's how you get the next Spielberg or Lucas or somebody when well, someone has access to these things totally. to express themselves. Well, real time photo, real, uh, you know, rendered ray traced, you know, graphics, uh, that are, that's off the rails, off the rails in terms of it's, it's not, uh, a game, but could be rendered through a game engine, you know, um, the potential that that brings to aspiring young storytellers, filmmakers, um, what have you. I mean, it's super, super exciting. I feel like it's, it's one of the biggest things to come along since, um, since the, the switch over to, you know, digital cameras. And that's exactly one of the most exciting things I've seen in a long time. That's what you do is is you're the bridge to that literally. Yeah. But the only thing I'd say about that is, and I just want to push back on that a little bit. Like, I feel Mm. like we, um, I don't know. I'm not saying we overrate it, but like, while it's really significant getting it down to the few hundred dollars zone, I feel like that underestimates or, or sort of passes how significant it is to get it down to the few thousand dollars zone. And this is my point. Like when the red camera came down from like a hundred thousand to a few thousand, like let's say it's four, let's say it's six or eight. I understand that that's still in the case of these cards, same thing. That's still a lot of money. And I'm not saying that it isn't to an individual, but it isn't to a professional who's doing a job. I mean, if you are a professional cinematographer, professional graphics guy, whatever, then you should be able to have a business that, $6,000 is a sort of a reasonable expense that the company could sustain. Oh, sure. Agreed. But the explosion of the number of people that enter it at the $6,000 mark versus the $100,000 mark is so extraordinary. And then when you go down from that to the next level down, I feel like that, that opens up a new set of uses. But you, like if we take audio for a second, like people that are doing professional albums and stuff, 
aren't doing it on free software. I mean, it, it might be notionally that they could do it on free software, but they just don't. They end up still with like quite expensive studios and yeah, mics and a ton of other things. And so it's like I, I feel like you get a huge change structurally to the industry once you hit the thousands of dollars and then that industry is going to still kind of maintain itself even if you then drop another level again. Now, the only thing that runs, I guess, contrary to that is we have seen a huge explosion with DaVinci, which is basically free. Um, but nevertheless, I still feel like, you know, I don't know, it's just like... Well, like, I mean, I hear like, what I think you're 6, saying. 6,000 is a really good money. No, I'm, I, the, we, I think we all agree that the the cost of that card, even two of them, for what it's doing is way undervalued financially, uh, which is good for all of us. But, you know, as we, I think, acknowledging the, the democratization model, you know, you end up with professionals mixing with, you know, semi-professionals or uh, prosumer professionals and but at a certain point quality shakes out and you have yeah you know the people who are who are left doing quality work and the people who want to pay the people you know the zero and zero to to crap dollars budgets because they know the technology is cheap well those aren't jobs professionals want anyway so it takes a while and it hurts the industry that it's that's being democratized for sure and i know that wasn't in it's exactly where you were going with that, Mike. But I, you know, I think you know, even from a from a production standpoint, you know, the fact that anyone at this point can capture a good image by just pointing a camera at something that takes composition and and other art, you know, yes. forms out of yeah. it. But from a qualitative standpoint of you know digital imagery, anyone can point a camera at something at this point and say, okay, well, I have a four K blah, blah, blah image. Now what? But, you know, th then I feel like at the end of the, the volcanic eruption of the democratization, you get back to, okay, who's the artist? You know what I mean? Okay. So, so now be, so it, so we don't turn this into this week in tech talk. So now <laughs> let me spin this, no, but let me spin this now into mission impossible, which is where I was going with this, right? Do it. So is mission impossible now which has gone completely overboard on obsessing with how much they're getting stuff in camera with the actual star doing stuff. So it's not enough just that it was done in camera, not enough that it was done for real, but it had to be real with the incredibly high-paid star. Is that not in somehow a direct reaction to the fact that there has been a democratization of visual effects, so it's no longer special and so it's no longer wanted as much in that to get the attention, to get the media to make it an event to make it a really interesting film. I now have to go against that tide because it's cheapened it somehow because you can do anything. So I don't care. So it's not so, it's not so, Oh my God, it's actually Tom hanging off the side of the helicopter. Good God. Now I'm sitting forward in my seat. I would, I would say it's a handshake at that point. It, it's now at a 50, 50 because you can put him on the side of a helicopter knowing that you can rig him safely and do all these things that with the, with the high quality of, of, of even quote unquote affordable visual effects, much less a 200, $300 million budget film, you can remove those things and make the real in-camera gag even better because it really looks like he's there with no, with no, you know, he's really flying right. with no ropes. So I think it's a, we, we've gotten to the handshake moment, you know, 
where it's now a hand in hand. The, the visual effect, to your to use your word, now becomes a special effect mixed, you know, in a stunt mixed with visual effects. Yeah. But Matt, aren't we changing the discourse? Because I'm saying I need to have going into the cinema a contextual understanding of the filmmaking process to fully appreciate the film because I meant to appreciate it's actually Tom because maybe the visual effects could make it look just like Tom by, I know, putting his face digitally on that of a stunt person mm. or just putting a digital actor in there. And so I need to, I need to actually contextualize the, the, the filmmaking process for the audience yeah. to fully appreciate my film. Yeah. I mean, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I understand that argument, I guess. I just don't know that, um, the average cinema um, audience member, the average person going to see Mission Impossible, what did, what did we say it was, six? Fallout, Mission Impossible, Fallout? Um, yeah. Or, or even the, the previous two ones, where he the previous one where he hung on to the edge of a plane and the one before that where he... Um, the Burj, know, did some other building? Burj Khalifa. Oh, yeah, ran yeah. across the building and stuff. You know, and, and you know, that's sort of become part of the, the lore and the PR around these Tom Cruise tentpole action films. Um, and I think, you know, that's good for the movie. It's good for, um, you know, the sort of press around a movie. It helps the movie generate revenue. But I don't know that these things are occurring. I don't know that it follows that they're occurring in response to, you know, other big tentpole films, whether it's Marvel movies or Star Wars movies or other what action franchises the, that have a lot of visual pushback, effects. The, the huge pushback on the new Robin Hood film when it came out because it just looked like it was too slick, too, um, you know, visual effectsy, and they just everyone went mental. It like it looked like a rock clip. They hated it. It was ghastly. But isn't, it, but isn't that more, but don't you think part of that too stems from the fact that maybe it's just not a very good movie. And well, so the movie isn't out yet. So we don't know if it's a good movie. It's just that it was, it, the marketing didn't make it look like it was, you know, it, it made it look like it was, because we've, we've discussed this before, right? The, the, the mm. idea, I'm going to have miniatures and I'm going to push the fact that I have miniatures, even though they played a relatively small role because people right. are going to be really impressed that I did it old school. Um, and, and, of course, the point that I always make when somebody says Tom Cruise, you know, they're doing it for real in this film, it's absolutely, it's it's for real. And I'm like, yeah, because Tom's really a secret agent and they're really <laughs> handling plutonium for a real nuclear bomb. Um, <laughs> that isn't, you know, a cardboard cutout standing behind him that's the... Anyway, my point is, in this, in this kind of uh, pushback, we've gone from pushback on that we need to have miniatures, like special effects versus visual, to no, no, we're going to get it in camera and I'm going to put out a ton of stuff in advance showing that it was really going on. Uh, I agree that Tom Cruise is doing it more than anyone else, but... I think, uh, to Matt's point, I think personally half the reason it's being done is not because the audience is clamoring for it, but because... Studios are so afraid people don't go to the theaters. They're looking for every yeah. marketing angle they can to get people interested in the film. So have we passed the too. age that a big effects film is in of itself an event film and something worth seeing because it's a big effects film? Because like go back to the Ten Commandments, right? It was a big deal that they parted the, the, the you know the uh, Red Sea. And the <laughs> idea that this was like uh, bigger than Ben-Hur because oh, Ben-Hur was a big effects film. Yeah, obviously different type of effects. <laughs> but, you well, know, like, a, I mean, look, Earthquake, right? Or, um, yeah, uh, Towering Inferno. Poseidon Adventure, yeah. Towering Inferno. Yeah, they were like big effects films. Mm -hmm. Now do we just say yawn when it comes to the next 2012 and 
Well, you know, well, New York they were they were big effects films, but those movies you're citing too, they were also like they were sort of like the um, the B. love boat equivalent yeah. of movies, and they movies, had yeah. a, <laughs> and they but they but they had a I want that on a t-shirt. Poseidon was the love boat of movies. <laughs> well, in the sense that it, <laughs> in the sense that one of the things that those sort of um, was it Cecil B. DeMille or whatever yeah. was the guy that made this. One of the things that made those movies, and I think um, even Dino De Laurentiis kind of um, put his hand into that um, soup at some point in time too with certain films. But I think part of the reason why those movies were such big events was yes, the visual effects were a part of it, but they also took like a huge cadre of a lot of like older A-list stars. Character actors. And cast them and character actors and put them in these roles in these movies. And so you'd be going to, and that's why I compare it to the love boat, right? Which is all these sort of guest starring roles kind of, um, it's this kind of, um, it's an event film in terms of the visual effects, the scope, the spectacle, but also like, Hey, and we've got like Paul Newman, you know, and, uh, red you know, Tom DeLuise and Red <laughs> Buttons. Yeah, like I mean, these crazy set the you know Raquel Welch or whatever, and all these stars in this movie, and as they try to escape the towering inferno or whatever it is, and so I think that's part of it too. But so, you can't market, and I don't think I don't think it compares to sort of the way that a film like Mission Impossible Six or the last two, the way they're marketed. I think it's a different thing. It's I, like it's like. Tom Cruise is is the the bankable star. Okay. I, I also don't think you, you can market Guardians of the Galaxy from a production standpoint because if you've watched any of the BTS, it's people on a blue screen stage. The film looks great when it's finished, but like unless you're gonna have BTS of you know visual effects artists at their desks doing you know really good work, there's no there's no production marketing that you can do. For a, not for in the same a, way. Not okay, in the but, same way. But okay, but do you okay? For two points. Firstly, Matt, by your reckoning on the mm-hmm. love boat, does that make the last <laughs> Avengers film the current love boat of its era? Because it's got all these um, stars in it. Some of who, by I the mean, way, are looking a little old. I think, in a strange way, I think that the thing about maybe the Avengers movies, and this is again, it's totally subjective. But I mean, I think the Avengers, I would argue, is uh, as a franchise of pictures, it's more. I would I would say it's it does fall into that subcategory maybe, but I think it's a little bit more interesting in that I think um, it has a level of humor and a, a maybe a self seriousness, an attempt at a level of serious sophistication um, in terms of narrative structure, character. I mean, it's not. I mean, the characters <laughs> building happens in other movies, but um, yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, I mean, I it does some. kind of fall into that category. I just think it, it doesn't quite sit in that same, um, you know why? So would you guys agree with why? Because, why? because the Avengers, the Avengers movies is, is the reverse of how they made TV in the seventies where the Avengers is the, is the series, but it's made from all the spinoffs were made first. <laughs> and then they made, they're like, Oh, we can take all these random characters and make a, make a movie. Uh, but also I would say that infinity war was more akin to battle of the network stars than, uh, I'm dating myself here, but, uh, okay. But, but, okay. But so, but do we want, but do we not think that there was some push in this new, new, uh, mission impossible to say we're, we're, we're a bit more Dunkirk and a bit less war of planet of the apes, both really good films, but, 
like in War of the Planet of the Apes, I would have gone and seen it for the tech. I would have, I mean, I think it was a magnificent film, but I would have, I mean, it was a spectacle. It was like amazing visual effects, but maybe like I'm in the minority because I'm in the industry. And so you have to well, make yourself look more like Dunkirk where you say, no, no, it's a great film. And we just haven't had some a mission impossible film. Isn't a Mission Impossible film more like a Jason Bourne movie, right? It's ah, a different... Well, okay, so Jason no? Bourne, that's a great example. So, but we didn't, we didn't have the same marketing around the fact that you were threatening the star's life by sticky taping to the side of a plane or making him <laughs> hang off the side of the tallest building or, or making him... Like, like, let's take the previous one, right? The, the underwater sequence in um, the previous Mission Impossible. <laughs> that was the dumbest thing in history, yeah. right? Like for yeah. a start, the door only opened from the inside. Secondly, you have all these disk drives underwater. Like, do you really want to put your phone <laughs> and your computer underwater? Thirdly, what the hell point was the exercise? Like the only way to service these things is to yourself drop in a water tube or, or, or and then what was the robot arm doing? Why did you need to move the disk drives from A to B? Has anyone heard of a router? <laughs> like you have this massive robotic arm <laughs> underwater and just because you want to move the drive from slot B to slot 73, I mean, hello. Uh, that was someone know. in the tape archive pointing out the LTO robot. Yeah. Okay, but even okay. if you did point <laughs> out the LTO pieces. robot, right? Like it was just the dumbest thing in yeah. history, right? Well, but, did he did he hang need on, to hold but, his breath but, for six minutes? Exactly. That's my point. Yeah, That's yeah. where I'm going. Like the whole thing about that mm. scene was almost to justify that Tom learned how to hold his breath longer than is physically possible without developing gills. Now, I think <laughs> Tom Cruise is really good, right? I think his films are really fun, and I really liked this film. But I'm just a bit worried about what it says about the visual effects because this is the VFX show that the technology has got to a point that now we're saying, well, we can't, we can't make a spectacle out of the visual effects, which is what visual effects has been sort of built on because we have to have our kind of it's in camera, even though the ridiculousness of the underwater thing. Yeah, um, but, yeah but, it's just one, but it's but, just one movie too. And it's like other movies do make a big deal out of the visual but, effects. Like, right. Because it's with, just a different flavor of ice cream. And know? what you were saying about Planet of the Apes Planet of the Apes is different because everybody knows that the apes are digital. Like inherently, everyone sees a trailer and goes, Fuck, look at those digital apes, right? Whereas you go we see- We got our explicit tag Oh, right sorry. Now. Whoop. Uh, you go to, <laughs> you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, you know they're all actors. They're digitally, you know, uh, manipulated and they're in digital environments. But I think the audience- uh, reacts to that differently. Um, okay, so in this film, in this film, we've got Tom as superb helicopter stunt pilot. Yes. Yeah. We, we've got Tom running around on rooftops to the point that he actually breaks his ankle for real, and then they still use the take where he climbs over I the edge, that. having broken his ankle, and steps out of shot, limping with a literally with a broken ankle right before he calls cut. Everyone go home for three months. Um, I, I, we've got him driving on a motorbike without a helmet on in what. Now, I think, by the way, that's really good visual effects yes. because, as I understand it, yeah. Tom is riding around on the motorbike, but the visual effects is putting extra cars in to make it look like yeah. the guy is about to die, yep. which is a terrific thing, right? You get both. You get him looking like he's driving for real because he is, and then you get the peril that without actually – Which I was going to bring wanna, up, yeah. We don't want to kill Tom Cruise, right? We, we like Tom. We, we really want him to be not dead. He's a good actor, you know, making good films, employing lots of visual effects artists. Like, we just really like Tom Cruise. But having said that, like, the, once you can see his face and you can really see what's going on, you, 
have to make it not look lame and that's a really good solution to it. So in all of these stuff that you've seen in this last film that Tom does, um, including running very fast and, and leaping and from tall buildings. And his halo jump. And his halo jump. the halo jump. Which, by the way, <laughs> in terms of marketing, can we just loop back that that was one of the best pieces of marketing mm-hmm. ever, the, um, yeah. the halo jump he did, or rather not halo jump, but the uh, parachute. Oh, with, with um, uh, yeah, what's his name, uh, carpool karaoke guy. Yes. Oh, uh, um, James Corden, yeah. James Corden. James Corden's yeah. scene that was with... so uh, funny. Yeah. Yes. You know, if you haven't seen that on YouTube, it's hysterically funny. But that, that was really so good marketing good. and clearly... Mm-hmm. And also, oh, uh, so to jump around again, also we've got to just shout out to the guy that was pulling focus on the actual halo jump in the film. Like John oh, Gardner, yeah. Best 106 focus jumps, pull of right? The year. Yeah. And, My and understanding that of that Tom's face coming closer to camera was just yeah. breathtaking. Yeah, they they I the, one of the things I was reading they talked about how they designed uh, that helmet because mm. a, a normal um, like military style halo jump, which is high altitude, low, uh, like it's opening, basically low, cord low light. shoot opening. Yeah. yeah, and and um you know they're at such a high altitude like they describe in the in the story that the oxygen is so thin that you have to have supplemental oxygen to jump from that altitude. But, um, they had, they designed a special, um, helmet that was self-illuminating and that, um, allowed him to have oxygen without like, um, sort of a respirator style, um, you know, jet fighter kind of mask right. over his mouth. Cause otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell it was him. So they designed a helmet that actually worked, um, at altitude that would illuminate both his face and allow him to have air. Well, and, and also jump- see, because the, the trouble yeah, is you would never stick a light totally. in a helmet because you can't yeah. see out because you've got a right. light shining in your face, which is why every yeah, underwater classic. movie ever is like stupid. <laughs> well, in every space movie, do you yeah. have space suits and stuff? Anyway. But, um, but yeah, they did that jump, I think like over a hundred times with, uh, you know, and they could only do it at certain times of the day and stuff. But, um, my understanding is too, that when they did finally assemble that sequence, right, they did the jump somewhere over Abu Dhabi, I think is where they actually shot it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're supposed to be over Paris, right. Yeah, and they, yeah, um, the French government they added all the said they can't, they couldn't do it. Yeah, they added all the clouds, the lightning, and the storms digitally. But they also took all the different takes that they had. And on a couple of the takes um, where it wasn't Tom, my understanding is that there was some face replacement, and they used that to assemble the master um, sequence. Yes, yes. And, and I don't have any problem with that. I mean, I don't have any problem yeah. with putting the thunder in and, um, and no, doing the stuff that they did because <laughs> – it's no, I wasn't saying right? I had a problem with it, but I think that's like yeah. I think that's at least from what I was reading. I think that's but, how that doesn't that like putting the cars in? Like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mix. But hang on, but thank you. My my question from like ten minutes ago was <laughs> all, oh, all those sorry. sequences. Which one did you like the most? <laughs> I think the the motorcycle chase was yeah. probably the most exhilarating. And there's two really. There's two different ones. Um, one where he's in that older sort of '80s. Uh, model BMW, right? Right. With um, with the bad dude, uh, the geologist who just likes rocks from uh, Prometheus, um, <laughs> and right, and Your who friend. played Ian Curtis in Twenty uh, Four Hour Party People. <laughs> right. And that was an awesome movie. But anyway, yes. go on. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think them. those those two chase sequences, um, the one in Paris, and I think is the other one in. Are they both in Paris? There's one in London. No, that's both in Paris. Now. Yeah, but those are those were great. I thought the just super exhilarating, really exciting, great action um, 
uh, filmmaking as well as editing and the, the digital cars, um, that create so much of the sort of sense of peril. Um, it's just, it was seamless. It was Mm -hmm. really, really good. Yeah. And to your point, Mike, uh, I forget who it was, but because I saw this, I saw this twice. I saw it once in Dolby, uh, in Times Square, and then I took my son to see it in IMAX by my house, uh, both in 2D. And, you know, he said, and even, he, you know, my son is, I think we've said this before, all our kids are somewhat fairly well trained to spot visual effects and what <laughs> have you. And he was like, oh, my God, the cars are like, you know, how did they do that? That was so crazy because he, he was on the motorcycle. I said, dude, the cars are digital. And he goes, whoa, those are really good. You know, like. <laughs> That's good. But it's good visual effects apart from the fact that it's well rendered because it's misdirection. Like you're right. looking at Tom. Yeah. And so you're not studying the car. And by the time you realize the car may have been digital, it's out of frame. I mean, it's perfect visual effects from that respect. Some probably really yeah. hard tracking, but you know. Um, what did you think of the helicopter fight? Because that was I, interestingly, that was shot in two different locations. But the first place yeah, New Zealand. The, and yeah, I loved so the I, helicopter fight. I've flown there in that helicopter. I mean, I've flown around oh, that, right. you know, where, where they, um, and it's, yeah. But the, Sorry, go on. from a story point, they, they should have made it that he knew how to fly a helicopter because yeah, when he gets dark. in the helicopter, yeah. he's, he's like doing one of the hardest things, pulling a helicopter out of a spin, you know, yeah. and you're like, okay. And then he's tapping on the dial. Oh, oh, that's, oh, that's altitude. That's whatever. Like, like, come on, just, yeah, he's, that was ridiculous. He's Ethan Hunt. He can fly a helicopter. It's totally cool. That's not going to yeah. make the scene any less bananas yes yes i totally agree <laughs> uh yeah i mean i thought it was a great sequence i thought the uh the the flying and the action overall was pretty compelling i liked um the way they they um with henry cavill, cavill i yeah. guess so with cavill with superman um he there was were a couple awesome. moments uh where uh i loved his cg mustache here but um i there were a couple of, <laughs> a couple of moments where um his helicopter he was in would um it would dive really quickly and you could see him actually physically yeah. lift up off the seat. And that was amazing. Um, I, so the, the sort of the real time photography, um, of the sequence was extremely exciting. Although, you know, the, um, the, the tracer fire and the bullets and stuff, the things that were added. And I know they, I think they added some snow and some clouds, uh, digitally, uh, in some parts of it. Um, it was exciting. I mean, it was a fun sequence. It reminded me a little bit of uh, that movie with Roy Scheider from the 1983, I think, called Blue Thunder, oh, directed yeah. by John John Badham, who with made Ron War Silver. Games. With Ron Silver in that? Uh, I can't remember. Um, but uh, Roddy McDowell is in it as the bad guy. And um, Roy Scheider is the helicopter pilot, but there's a great helicopter chase over nothing, LA. I, yeah, no, I don't know what you're talking about. But um, but it's kind of it's similar. It was it reminded me of that in a way, and that. It, but it would, this was much more um, uh, visually dynamic and exciting, even though it was not in an urban environment. I think it was it was really really well done. I think the the one part that strained believability, but was also still weirdly fun, was the um, the the crash sequence. Um, which I, I'm curious to hear if, if if Mike or Jason, if either one of you guys know, is that digital or is it some of those miniatures? But um, 
uh, the crash sequence I thought was pretty exciting, but then the, the cable uh, <laughs> uh, with the hook on it, it was uh, yeah. slipping twice, and that was a, it started to sort of strain believability. There were audible, uh, there was audible laughter um, a few times in the theater. Well, yeah, there was that, and there was also just like how beaten up can you get and still function, like, you know, if yeah. I fell over in the kitchen, I'd like want a couple of minutes to recover and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, about after, the same after age as Tom, Henry so. Cavill getting his face melted off by hot oil, you know, little two-faced. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, oh, wait, no, I, sorry, wait, I just I've have just to say. my face melted off. You, you, you just said something about you're roughly the same age as Tom Cruise and yeah. you'd need time to recover if you slipped in the kitchen. Um, I do think one thing that's very important to mention is that, Tom Cruise in this movie, yep. when they shot and made this movie, he's older than Wilford Brimley was in the first movie, Cocoon. He's five Ron years Howard older than Cocoon. Wilford Brimley was in that movie. <laughs> Which, when you think about that and you look at what no. Wilford Brimley looks like in Cocoon and then you look at Tom Cruise, wow, that is crazy. Yeah, but look at Wilford Brimley in The Thing. He's like probably five years younger in that movie. He's 10 years younger, you know, there and he looks like he's a yeah. hundred, you know. He's like uh, an old man baby yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I mean, I, <laughs> at that point in the movie with the, you know, the ticking bomb that of course only has 15 minutes yet. The sequence is like 20, you know, and I understand it's cross cutting and there's other things happening, but, and that's fine. Uh, the, the, I think at that point when it's like, you know, helicopters collide, they, they bounce down the thing and they fall out and then they do the thing and then the hook. And the, at that point, that the movie descends into just traditional action movie yeah. territory, which mm-hmm. I think maybe the audience needs at that point because everything else has been mm-hmm. so tense. Maybe you need a little kind of like, all right, I get it, you know, over the topness. I don't know. I, I didn't mind it because I knew it was going to happen. Like once they started in that with the thing and in, in the going down the chute, you know, with the rock when it kind of like yeah. gets stuck and then goes, you're like, okay, obviously, you know, the thing, the the little follow focusy kind of you know uh, remote detonator unit, you know, lands on the last inch of the thing and then they kick it and you know it's just. It's just a standard kind of action movie thing. You just, I think everyone just settles back and goes, "Oh, we 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 know what this is. We know what how well, this yeah, is." Gonna- it just felt like it, it crossed over almost into camp a yeah. little bit in yeah. that final yeah. sequence. Yeah. To and, me. And Although the whole one second thing and the you know, yeah. I did appreciate the the when he when he at the end of the thing they go to white. And they kind of try to trick you that there was a nuclear explosion mm-hmm. and the other thing that I was like, oh okay. That's a nice little a nice little thing. I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but it kind of does because you assume there's going to be a nuclear explosion and you cut to them and they're not dead. And you're like, okay, you know. Um, but it was just, just the sun. Just, yeah. just while we're on yeah, it, just, do, you, do we think that, like, I know it's Tom Cruise's films, but if this was the Bond franchise or something else, we'd be discussing another actor taking over that role. From, mm-hmm. Do we need, you know... Scarlett Johansson cast as the first black Ethan Hawke. I mean, what, what, you know what I mean? Do we, do we need somebody else? <laughs> Whoa, that's a loaded statement. Yeah. There. Well. Um, yeah. Um, I know. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think Tom Cruise, uh, could easily play the Jack Donaghy, uh, <laughs> role, the, um, what's his face? Um, 
you know, the, uh, what's his name? Hunt for Red October guy. Oh, Alec yeah, Baldwin. Yeah. yeah. Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Sorry. I'm drawing a total blank. It did, it did um, feel a little bit like this was a final hits film. Like, I mean, I, I liked it. I, yeah. I really, really liked it. Yeah. But they had references to the, um, the mother of the, uh, woman was, um, uh, was it Sam? No, was it, um, Ben? What was the name of the, her mother that was in the first film in the train in the channel? The, you know, um, uh, Michelle uh, Monaghan? The wife? So, yeah, you, so you know the main, you know the main fa- female lead yeah. in this film? She's talking yeah. about her mother, and her mother was the baddie right. in the first oh, film Rebecca, ever. You were talking about uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Ferguson Rebecca yeah. Ferguson. yeah. So oh, I, I didn't Rebecca. even the, put yeah. that together because I don't like the first two. Well, the first one, which, by the way, had equally a weird done ending with the um, helicopter going through the channel. Yeah. Channel tunnel. <laughs> and Brian De Palma. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, like there was that, there was like just, you know, other cast members brought back, like references to tons of other um, Mission Impossible stuff. And even the, uh, the this will self-destruct in five seconds was a classic, this will self-destruct in five seconds with, you know. The smoke. Smoke. And it really felt like they were, I mean, if the, you told me this was the last one they were going to do, I'd have believed you. Not that it should be the last one. I'm just saying like it just felt like they'd. I, I did hear an interview with um, Christopher McQuarrie who directed this one and I think he also did the, he did the one before too. Yeah. One? Rogue yeah. Nation. Yeah, and, and he is credited as one of the writers on this one with uh, Bruce Geller, I guess, but you know, the original creator. So he's also the screenwriter um, of this one as well and worked closely with Cruz. And I heard an interview with him. I think it was on, um, well, I can't remember which one of some podcast. It might've been um, the uh, Q and a or it, uh, one of those, or maybe the director's, um, DGA yeah. podcast or something. But anyway, Christopher McQuarrie was talking about um, working on this film and how he, you know, was going to do it, then he wasn't going to do it, and then he was going to do it, and then he finally came back to do it. But the one thing that had always been sort of bothering him was that the whole sort of storyline with his wife had never really yeah. um, been resolved in a way that he felt satisfied with. And uh, I guess Cruz certainly uh, concurred with that. And so I think there was an effort in the screenplay in this one to try to tie all the sort of um, narrative threads, um, uh, sort of tie them up in, you know, a nice uh, kind of <laughs> conclusion um, from the previous uh, films in the franchise because it sort of felt like it had kind of gone scattershot and you didn't really know who was who and Can what I- was what. And so I think that was an intentional thing. Can I also point out that the stunt, the fight choreography stunt work in this movie was ridiculous in yeah. a good way. That bathroom fight with that, Cavill that and the things best, the, yeah, was like, the oh, my God. Yeah. And then she steps and, in, great introduction for her. And then the fight with him and with Cruz and, and Rebecca Ferguson and um, the White Widow or whatever her name was mm-hmm. in, the, in that super, super Bond you know, underexposed bar, French, you know, Chantoussi yep. bar yep. thing was also fantastic. No, no, uh, but, but surely the the award goes to that sort of double hand air fist punch thing that oh, yeah. Cavill does before he walks up. It's like, okay, um, yeah, I don't know <laughs> Which where that was came an accent. from. Was an accident. Well, it looked great. <laughs> no, it was yeah. it was it was something he was doing to like just sort of loosen up before they yelled action, yeah. and Macquarie was like, "Dude, do that." <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Okay, it, yeah, it's, so it's creepy." It's it was creepy like, and okay, night. here I come, Scary. and I'm, yeah, yeah, and I'm not going to pull a muscle, which is yeah. great because you know you want your 
your Bond villain heroes to not pull a muscle. Yeah. Um, yeah. And no, I thought and that I, was so well done. And I thought Rebecca Ferguson was, I mean, she was great in the previous one, but she is, I think she's awesome. Like she really sort of came out of nowhere. I mean, I know she's been acting for a while, but like to step into basically the co-lead for the, both of these movies and like really hold it obviously as an actress, but, but as an action, you know, uh, sort of star, you know, the fight scene with Lane at the end in the cabin between the two of them was, mm. was awesome mm-hmm. where they, you know, you, you get the ticking clock of Benji hanging and is he not hanging and he's on the thing and she slides the thing under his feet. And then she, she has that move she keeps doing, which I think is super smart from a choreography standpoint, because, and I don't think this is sexist to say, in this movie, the men are inherently stronger than the women, just physically. So she has yeah. different moves. So, like, yeah. she does that thing where she, like, runs up the dude and puts her legs around and swings and flips and, like, you know, flawlessly executed yet perfectly fitting her character. And and I think it's just there's a lot of smart decisions, but I think there's a lot of great performance in this movie all yeah, she around. Has, I mean, they give her character strength. They give her character a sense of agency. They yeah. give her – she has a purpose that's antithetical in some ways to the She doesn't have a gratuitous slow motion shower scene? Nope. Yeah. And I actually – I was going to say, too, the, the woman that played the White Widow. I don't know if you guys yeah, recognized sh- her, but she was she was in The Crown, the Netflix series, where she played Princess Margaret. Yeah. And um, she's awesome. She was awesome. She was so great and such an interesting uh, turn that her character took. Like, and, like so weirdly cold-blooded, too. Like, the whole thing yeah. where there's that fight scene and, like, she just stabs some dude in the chest and, like, then they leave and they kind of – are looking at each other like it's almost like a flirtation. Yeah. But they just committed murder okay. and well, she stabs the guy, and then she, he looks at her and she's like, "Yeah, so like I can't stab a guy, you know?" Like, yeah, did you guys, this is weird. Did you guys pick up on the huge edit in this film then? Right after that fight sequence, like, do you remember the trailer? There was this sequence where he's flying a helicopter at a truck. Yeah, and they yeah, go, and then it just completely doesn't happen. Yeah, there's an entire sequence um, when they left the uh, thing. With the brother involved, you know, because the brother mm-hmm. like was all this thing about your brother and I don't trust your brother and yeah, your family, yeah. and and, like and why, that was all played yeah. out with the helicopter and the and so if he's in that helicopter, how does he not know how to fly the other helicopter at the end? I don't know because we never saw that because it was cut out of the film. And yeah, yeah, he's meant to be going at huh, this truck. Interesting. And I was like, I wonder if they cut that sequence for time or they did, yeah. Or, but yeah. it was so funny because it was in the trailer and it looked yeah. like I was like, how is he going to survive this? It's impossible. He can't survive it. Oh, wait, it was a dream. He didn't actually do that. <laughs> Interesting. But, yeah, it's it's funny to see a scene that dominant in the trailer that's just nowhere in the film. But I guess we just don't care anymore as an audience. Or I, we just I was waiting remember. for it. Personally, in the movie, I was like, I want to see how the hell he gets out of that shot. Yeah, it didn't look like it was possible, right? Yeah. So, you know, and also, I mean, at the... At, Thinking about it, it felt a bit like the helicopter sequence in the first one. Yeah, you um, can't have two anyway. Yeah, and then you got a helicopter sequence. I mean, it makes sense to cut it, but it was just like kind of But weird. it's funny because uh-huh. what, what you were saying, Mike, about, you know, um, the nature of the stunts for specifically for this movie, it's almost like there are 
or it's not almost, there are set pieces per action, right? So you have a driving set piece in a car, you have a motorcycle set piece, you have a, a high altitude set piece, whether it's, you know, or actually two, because he climbs the rope of the thing and falls yep. and climbs yeah, back yeah. up. And then he's got the halo jump. And then, you know, you have running. He always runs. And there was that whole yes. article, which I think was part of the marketing in some capacity, where somebody said, you know, they did, somebody did a scientific study that, you know, or a, or a, a market breakdown of, uh, whenever Tom Cruise runs in a movie, the movie does better at the box office. And the more <laughs> per minute running there is in the movie, the higher the budget. And he runs nice. his ass off in this movie, just hauling ass. You think there's ass. a correlation and, and causality issue there? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Yes, of course. Apparently, but, swimming pool deaths are related in almost perfect harmony with how many times Nicolas Cage makes a film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but But I, you know... I think it's interesting how, like, they're, like, because I don't think ev the first few movies were like that. And it's sort of built into the fact that at this point, you know, they have the, they have the ability and the budget and the, and the fan base to say, okay, well, we have a running bit, but how, like, we have a helicopter bit. Can we do two? Or what if we do a helicopter and a halo jump? Okay, we have that. So do we, like, are they, like you know, dealing car action set piece cards and then putting a plot around it. They did do that. They actually didn't have a script when they started. They had the set pieces and they built this plot around it, I believe. Well, they did a Literally. good job. Um, yes, I think they did a good job. Um, I think that it's gone well at the box office and so that probably means there'll be another one. Um, we haven't mentioned any of the supporting casts because obviously we've been focused on the visual effects and, and other stuff. But I, I do think that Simon Pegg uh, has been a great addition to the franchise. Like you need, I think, a bit of relief from just Tomness. And I think that uh, that he's really good. And I thought Alec Baldwin was quite good in this one as well. I don't know what you guys thought. Yeah, I mean, I I thought so. I, th I just think uh, it looked like Ving Rhames, though, was hitting the craft services table pretty hard. Yeah, I left him off my list just then. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, because in the original one, he was a computer expert, right? So he kind of made sense. Yeah. In this one, he's just like the guy I choose to be my other. I mean, honestly, if I was Tom, I'd get two kind of super guys that looked a lot more like Henry than than Simon and stuff to go with me because. I did love this, yeah. the scene with Alec Baldwin where he does the, um, where they sort of trick Henry Cavill's character yes. into into admitting everything. And then. Yes. And then he's like, oh, wow, this is really fun. I really see how you guys start to enjoy this, you know. And I, it, yes. it, it, it felt like he slipped a little into his Glen Gary, Glenn Ross character, like, um, like <laughs> as, you know, I just wanted him but, to say to Henry Cavill, you know what you get? A set of steak knives, you know. Okay, but I thought Alec Baldwin was totally <laughs> believable. I just, as much as I like Simon Pegg, and I really do like him a lot, I didn't, I, I just, you know, when he was the scuba diver that rescued um, yeah. our villain from the overturned, yeah. Like, Sean Harris is great, but I just don't know if I was planning something like that, that I'd be like, we need an incredibly crack scuba diver to go down, weld off a door, get in, rescue a guy out. Simon, you're our guy. You know, Benji <laughs> was like, again, not meant to be this kind of field operative. He only went into the field after whatever the second or but third film was. But who else could it be? Yeah, can't be Ving Rhames. Well, my, no, I know. But my point is, like, you know, he's, like his Mission Impossible team used to be a bunch of experts in sort of 
domain experts. Right. And now we've just got Simon. But having said that, I like the two characters, Luther and, um, and Benji. I just feel like you need a – and I think what they suffered from here is that um, – what's his name? Um, Hawkeye from the, the last film. Um, oh, Jeremy Renner, yeah. Was going to be in this but couldn't because of a scheduling problem. If he'd been in it, that would have solved my problem because you've had one right. other decent kind of person doing things. Yeah. Um, that was more athletic, that you would reasonably assign the task of scuba diving down to weld off and rescue people and, right. you know, and gunshots that, and stuff. Wasn't he out of it because he broke both his arms on tag? He might be right. That I, could I be, didn't yeah. know that he broke his arms. I didn't know. Um, but that was the I film. But yeah, that. I got to yeah, see that's that what digital arm replacement in there. Yes, but both of them. Somebody said... Uh, one of the people in, in tag, I think it was Ed Helms or something said, you know, I think I find it interesting that Jeremy does, you know, the Avengers and mission impossible and all that <laughs> stuff. And he doesn't get hurt. And he does this stupid comedy called tag and he breaks both his arms in the first week. <laughs> uh, yes. So, um, <laughs> yes. So we generally like the film, but have some issues. Now what, what is, where was that? Where we come at the end of this? I guess I would say, like, I, I mean, I didn't have any I thought issues. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't, no I don't know. The, the, the only issues I had, I guess, were I, to me, it was really fun. I had a great time. Like, I don't have high expectations for a Mission Impossible movie. I, I'll be honest. Like, I don't, I don't have, go in thinking it's going to suck, but I kind of go in thinking I know what I'm going to get, right? Like, it's like going to, um, you know, a, a chain restaurant or something. Like, you kind of know what you're going to get when you go there, right? You, it's like the same wherever you go. And I feel like a Mission Impossible movie might have some exciting new stunts. Maybe there's going to be some cool, you know, interesting twist. But I mean, you know, they're pretty easy to see coming, most of the twists. They feel like they telegraph them for you before they they happen. Um, you know, it, it's entertaining. I think the problems I had with the film were so just a couple of structural things that happened towards the end. I think the kind of, um, the way they made... Uh, Ethan Hunt in the end, like it's that he's the only person capable yeah. <laughs> of keeping the world safe and how the, the, the two female uh, characters, the Rebecca Ferguson character and the Michelle Monaghan character, how they're just so fawning over him. It was, it, it almost, it fell into this and the, the dialogue between him and her and her and him. And it was so cornball. Like, I mean, we were people were laughing at how ridiculous yeah. it was, and I feel like it, that wasn't intended to be funny, but it was okay. so ridiculous that it, but, it it took it took everything that had happened in the movie that I thought was compelling and interesting and and really fun, and it made it it made it into just a big joke at the end that like felt sort of silly to me, I guess, and that was kind of a drag. I feel like that the the way they ended the film for me in some ways kind of ruins. Um, it as a film in total, you know? Right. But but we haven't said this yet, but Dean Egg was responsible, Double Negative was responsible mm. for the visual effects. And I'm hearing that you didn't have any problem with the visual effects. You having like a... No, no, no. When it comes problem. to visual effects, right? So there yeah. was Double Negative, One of Us, uh, Blind LTD, yeah, Dean Egg was the Third lead, Floor, yeah. Yeah. and uh, Blue Bolt VFX and Territory Studio. I'm not sure who did what specifically, although yeah, Dean Egg as the lead with, uh, was it, is it Hugh or... Uh, Hugh Evans, visual, visual effects supervisor, H-U-W, um, forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think overall the visual effects. Oh, the one thing I, I was going to mention was I did actually really like the um, all the uh, on-screen computer animations that were in this movie because they, they they were so over the top in some ways, but they really were plot points. They showed us so many things about like how those bombs would work and you know what was that issue and what had to happen. Um, and I thought a lot of that stuff was was really. Um, Pretty cool and pretty well done. They did, even did like a little heads-up display at the beginning of the film on the um, like a HUD on the Halo Jump um, windscreen. Actually, I have thought, to say uh, the the Benji iPad sequence was one of my favorite comic sequences in the whole film. <laughs> yeah, right? that, that was amazing. Holding it upside down, and yeah, that was great. But, um, uh, I really appreciate uh, the anamorphic cinematography. I thought it was really nice. And the color correction, they went like super warm with everything, which which I think also in that what's it called in the uh, the White Widow introduction scene, you know, made it feel mm-hmm. even bondier. You know, when they walk yeah. up to mm-hmm. like, oh, we're in a super dark. You know, the production design was great, the lighting was great. You know, oh, how do we get our characters lit in a really dark? you know, setting, oh, they'll walk to the bar. That's a giant light table. Perfect. (laughs) You know, give us a light table, you know, walk over here, (laughs) step into your light. You know, I just, there were really smart decisions, uh, both, you know, cinematically, you know, cinematography, color correction. You know, I think it's nice to see all of that stuff come together outside of really good visual effects um, for me. Yeah, the, the cinematographer on this wasn't one. I mean, he did Broken and stuff, right? But he hadn't done a ton of stuff. I think he wasn't. He wasn't even. He was on Ex Machina, but it wasn't the lead DOP or something. Is that right? Rob Hardy. Uh, he did. Wrong. Hold on, I'm going to look it up. He did some reasonable stuff there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But I just don't think he's like a you know, thirty year or or twenty feature film in veteran. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, that's well, the sort of thing you normally Annihilate Annihil- thirty nine <laughs> movies. Annihilation, Ex Machina. Uh, but he wasn't the. Was he the DOP on Ex Machina, or maybe he was? I don't. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. I apologize. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, looks like it. I think it looks like you know, in terms of like large, um, you know, large Make budget things. I think the first big budget thing he 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 did was uh, Ex Machina. And then okay. Annihilation and wasn't a Mission Impossible fallout. No, but I mean, you know, uh, from a visual effects standpoint. Um, I mean, I'm looking it up now as we speak. Egg Machina was a 15 million budget. Yeah. Annihilation was a 40 million budget. This was like a $175 million budget. He, oh, he yeah, had more I mean, money for coffee on this film. Yeah, the, the mm-hmm. Ex Machina's yeah. budget on this film was, was the catering. Yeah. Hey, we got to go, but it's been great talking to you guys. Again, congratulations, Jason, on your Emmy nomination. Thanks um, so much. Nice to be back with you guys. Now I'm back from Vancouver and things have settled down. Um, Jason, where can people sort of follow you, find out, presume you're going to post photos from your uh, award-winning kind of night on the town? Uh, I hope so. It'll be September 8th is the awards. I think they air the following weekend, so I don't know if I – I don't know what the – Hosting nature is, but yeah, I'll be out and about. It's I'm not, going to England on uh, on tomorrow for some, cool. some esports live streaming stuff, which should be fun. And uh, 
yeah, so uh, Super Sphere VR, the Diamond Bros, Facebook, uh, you know, all that stuff. Instagram. And, and what's your Instagram <laughs> account? Uh, just my name. It's all my name, Jason Diamond. Okay, cool. Matt, what about you? Uh, well, you can always find me at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts where uh, classes start on Monday. So today's, what, Saturday the 25th. The calm before the storm. So oh, boy. A couple days from now, classes start. And I'm super excited, actually. This semester I'm doing a, I'm actually teaching a full-blown visual effects class, which I haven't done, uh, strangely enough, I haven't taught an, an actual class that whose title was uh, visual effects. I've done a lot of computer graphics stuff, but um, it's going to be pretty exciting. I'm gonna, we're, I got a licenses of uh, synth eyes, so we're going to do some fun camera tracking mm. and cool stuff like that in class, which I think Matt will be Wallen. fun. Get students to go out and shoot some stuff and um, do some fun match moves and insert some CG and excited for this one. I think it'll be cool. And uh, people can find me too on uh what is it? The Twitter at Matt Wallen or, or mattwallen.com. That's got all you my images of your sort of Bond stuff. title sequence. Matt, licensed to track. But anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously Mike Seymour and I'm an over at FX Guide. Thanks so much for being with us, guys. And when I was at uh, SIDGRAPH, I got a lot of people coming up and chatting and saying hi and doing stuff. And uh, time and time again, they mentioned how much they like the VFX show, especially people in the studios. Normally people like the people at DNEG who probably be listening to this, wondering whether... Um, their shot was the one that we loved or hated and uh, we hate to pick but we do appreciate you guys being tolerant and not beating me up uh, when you see me over the fact that we may have uh, not appreciated all the hard work that went into your shots. But again, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I'm Mike Seymour. We'll see you next time. Thanks guys. Bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com Copyright FX Guide, LLC.